0: I got to tell you, Maple Grove, I, I, I will rejoice in, in the simple gospel, right? No matter what is going on in my life, mountain high or valley low, I, I will rejoice in the fact that God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me. I, I, I will rejoice in the fact that God has given me a living hope. God has given me freedom. I, I will keep on rejoicing in the fact that it's no longer about being good enough, that it's no longer about measuring up. It's no longer about what I do or what I don't do. I'll rejoice in the fact it's about what Jesus Christ has already done. I'll rejoice in the fact that my guilt and my shame and my condemnation are no more. They're gone forever. I'll rejoice in the fact that my past is forgiving, that my future is secure in Christ, and and that In my present, I have his power and his purpose and his presence in my life. I will rejoice that nothing, that no amount of untruths. And the enemy speaks a lot of untruths. No amount of untruths will ever separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? I tell you, there's no better news than the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best, right? Right? And that's what we rejoice in, the simple gospel. I am free, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and God lives in me. It don't get a whole lot, well, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, God, through Paul, paints a powerful picture of that gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. If you guys would stand, we're going to take turns reading the screens. I'll go first. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not not by works, so that no one can boast, for you are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May God bless the reading of his word. God, we love you. What honor and privilege it is to come into your presence, and God, help us all as people, Lord, to rejoice in the simple gospel, to rejoice in you to praise your name, your person, your character, and your purposes, Lord, because they, they remain the same every day. If our life is going good, if our life is tough, Lord, they remain the same. And God, I ask that you would help us to lean into your word today. And God, enable me to bring your word in a way that brings you honor and brings you glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. That hey, you guys can take your seats. Hey, we're in week 10 in our series, Getting Better at What Jesus Said matters most. And Jesus says what matters most is loving God as we should, loving our neighbor as he intends, and loving ourselves as he commands. Um, Mark records these words in the 12th chapter of his gospel. When the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him of all the commandments, which is the most important? He's about to give us the cliff notes of the entire Bible. He's about to give us the cliff notes on life, on what God says is most important. The most important one, answer Jesus, is this. Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, man replied, you're right in saying that God is one. There's no one but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You know, those nine words are very powerful and penetrating. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Yes, smart guy, you know, you know the right answers. You, you know what's most important to God. But knowing is not enough. Here's a painting from the great artist, Steve Malone, right? Beautiful, right? And, and we talked about that this last week, that the Greeks had two words for know. Oida which was head knowledge, right? Knowing the right answers. And and gnosko, which is heart knowledge, which is known from personal experience, right? And, And we said that the greatest distance you and I will ever travel is the distance from our head to our heart, right? There's a difference between knowing and knowing, right? That's why Jesus said in John 13, 17, now that you know, oida, now that you know these things, You'll be blessed what? If you, if you actually do that. If you, if you do that. And since January 29th, we've been talking about getting better at what Jesus, the one who has authority in heaven and earth, says matters most. So, so Maple Grove, you know. You know that you must get better at loving yourself. You know that you must plunge the depths of the Father's love for you. You, you know that, that you must push through insecurity. You know that you must accept that loving yourself is essential, not selfish. You know that sometimes you must go back in order to go forward. You know that you must take 1 Corinthians 13 and and use that as a template for loving yourself. You know that you must let God's approval become your validation. Brothers and sisters, you know those things. But do you know? Those things have they traveled from your head to your heart? And you know that you must get better at loving God by saying yes to his extravagant proposal to spend a lifetime relationship with you. You know that you 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 must love God by enjoying his presence, by embracing his passions, by loving what God loves, and God loves the church, God loves the lost, God loves you. And then by engaging your own personal quest to know God. And listen, your journey with God is different than mine and anybody else in this room. In fact, it's different than the journey anybody that's ever walked this planet has ever had. Brothers and sisters, you know. You know that you must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But do you know? Do you know? And, And you see, when we go from knowing to knowing, as we pour more and more of God's love for us and our love for him into our lives, some really awesome, transforming things are going to happen. You know, I showed this picture, you know, last week that, you know, this cup represents your life. And many times our life feels empty, Right? Uh, we try things in life to satisfy us, but we, we come up thirsty like the woman at the well. And, and what happens to our life when we begin to pour God's love into it? Our life begins to what? It begins to fill up. It begins to fill up. And if we keep on pouring God's love into our life, what happens? You know, it, it what? It, it, it overflows, right? And you know what happens when It overflows. Whoever I'm close to, I Mike Drew from last week, you know, (laughs) you get what? You get wet, right? You get wet. You see, the people closest to you will get wet in patience, and kindness, right? And forgiveness will flow out from you onto those people. You see, Jesus in the simple gospel ushers us into a new way of living, Check out what um, a theologian named Inna Diedrich wrote in her book, Cultivating Missional Communities. This is really good. Early followers of Jesus were not called people of the experience or people of the right doctrine or the people of moral values or even the people of the church. They were called the people of the way. They were known for the way they lived, not only for what they believed or valued, Christians were associated with a particular and discerning way of living and relating that both grew out of their faith and gave testimony to their faith. More than just individuals who had a changed religious position, they were now a new people, a new community, embarking on a new way of life, a life worthy of their calling. The proclamation that in Jesus, the reconciling and transforming reign of God had become a historical reality was more than an intriguing idea. It, it had become visible in the people whose life together was the first fruit of the new social order intended by God for the whole of creation. Being people of the way gives the connotation that something was clearly different about them. The early Christians weren't giving up their freedom or their lives for a doctrine and ideology or an organization. They were following a person who was the way, the truth, and the life. A resurrected and serving Messiah transformed everything. Jesus didn't just communicate information or ideas, but he declared, I am the way. And he invited his disciples into a new life that was fueled and inspired by his examples, his teachings, and his sacrifice. That's good stuff. You see, we have been invited by Jesus into a a new way of living you know, we've been invited into his way of living you know, the way uh, of loving where we are right and, and and listen wherever you are that's where you are right wherever you are that's where you are and the way we picture in this diagram you know here you are right and and, and you have people close to you right you know, so I just asked you this week, as you've been pouring God's love into you, right, and your love for God into you, did anybody in your family, home or church, get wet, right? Did they experience your patience and your kindness and your love, right? Did anybody in your workplace experience that, right? You know, um, we love wherever we are. You know, I, I was picking up some ginger ale. I was making a ginger ale run for, for, for my wife. Diet, and I needed diet and regular for some people. And I want the food line, no dyed ginger ale, right? And so I went to the Harris Teeter. And as I'm walking to Harris Teeter, I'm thinking, love where you are, right? Like, like I'm at Harris Teeter. You know? So as I walked in, I, I, as soon as I walked into the entryway there, I go, a, a guy's walking in that works, works there. He's walking, get the cart. So I go, hey, good morning. How you doing? You know what he did? Good morning. How you doing? I'm thinking, well, I, I'm at Harris Teeter. I can, I can just like get everybody in here wet, right? You know, with the, with the love of God. You know, and, and, and wherever we are, right, we're supposed to leak out on the people in, in, in a good way, not a bad way. And, and last week we began talking about this concept of neighboring. And something we'll be talking about for a while. Matter of fact, the, the Life Groups will be soon asked to be studying this book as a group, um, The Art of Neighboring by a guy named David and a guy named Jay. And, and uh, they have a video I want you to watch right here. It's really good. Amen. Homework check time if you're here last week, I encourage you guys to pick up a a magnet. Uh, uh, We have a bunch of them up on the the railings up here on both sides right now. And, And you are to, you know, the eight closest households to you to write down the name of the adults, right? That was our homework to begin learning names. So you go from saying, hey, bro, to hey, Bob, hey, man, to hey, hi, Mike, right? The power of knowing names. And And so, you know, if this past week you made an effort to learn some names of your, in your neighborhood, or you made an effort to go out into your neighborhood and actually engage your neighbors, go ahead and raise your hand if you did any of that this week. Okay. All right. That's, that's not too bad, right? Okay. But again, it's a new week, right? Keep this on your refrigerator as a constant reminder. You know, I I started walking my dog again, right? I mentioned last week that I got lazy and put him on a chain where he can run out of the backyard, bring him back in. So I began walking my dog and all of a sudden encountering my neighbors all over again that I did in the beginning. But I lost my dog chain. I, I, like if there was a medal given for losing stuff, somehow I'm chained my dog in the garage and I, I, I've looked for an hour or two to try to find that dog leash again, cannot find it. So today, after church, I'm actually picking up a dog chain so I can walk through my neighborhood uh, today, okay? Learn those names, it makes a difference and the book, The Neighboring Church, Rick Rousseau and Brian Mavis wrote that uh, neighboring is more about engagement than organization. And neighboring is comprehensive. Everyone has a neighbor: the rich, the poor, the old, the young. Uh, neighboring is a humanizing event. And neighboring is a big deal to God because God loves your neighbor. And neighboring is a privilege. Uh, neighboring is knowing your neighbor's names, their hopes, their hurts, and their histories. A neighboring is an application of the power of the gospel. A neighboring is discipleship. It, it grows your heart and sometimes it grows your neighbor's heart. Uh, a neighboring is essential and elementary. A neighboring is being flexible, available, and present. A neighboring is as important as eternal and external ministries. Neighboring is about choosing to see. Neighboring is about allowing God to interrupt your day. Neighboring is messy. Neighboring is fun. Neighboring is being yourself and a being a better you. And neighboring is seeing people as God sees them. Neighboring is about going home and being the Christian you profess to be. Neighboring is a way of life. It's not a program. Jesus said, do this and you will live. And, and here's what I, I want to do this morning. But before I get there, I, I just want to let you know that you know, as a church and as a people, we are in the embryonic stages of neighboring, right? I and mean, we're just talking about this right now. Uh, but I want you to know that that we're going to keep talking about neighboring, right? It's going to become a value of our church, right? And we're going to wait till that sucker gives birth. But once it's born, we're going to keep on nurturing that so that we become a church that neighbors well. Because Jesus said this through Paul, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's just like if we're smart people, we do this, right? Okay, if I'm going to obey one thing, this is going to be it, right? And and to love our actual neighbors. Now, now there's some barriers that we have to get through to love our actual neighbors. I want to talk about four of them um, in our time remaining. One is, we kind of talked about a lot already, justifying, right? Justifying. You know, if you remember in Luke 10, when... A teacher of law asked Jesus about what is the greatest commandment, and Jesus gives him the answer. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to the guy, you know, do this and you will live, right? You know, and it, the guy wanted to justify himself, right? And he says, what? Who is what? Who's my neighbor? You know, who, who is my neighbor? And we tend to do the same thing. You know, we we tend to define our neighbor as somebody that we already love or someone that we're willing to love because they look like, think like, act like, and believe like us. And we also justify ourselves in not loving our actual neighbors by saying, hey, I'm loving my neighbors. I'm loving the neighbors I work with. I'm loving the neighbors I go to school with. You know, I'm loving the neighbors who... Or or, uh, that are part of, that I sit on the sidelines with when my kids are playing soccer. You know, I I love the, I'm loving my neighbors as I serve in the community. I'm loving my neighbors when I go overseas on a mission trip, you know. and, And listen, those are our neighbors, and we should love them. But loving those neighbors does not make our actual neighbor any less of a neighbor, right? Remember Acts chapter 17, 26, where Paul says, that God determines, you know, the times that we're going to live and the exact place that we're going to live. And and see, you know, we're in our neighborhoods maybe not for the reason we think we are, not for the school system, not because it has great amenities, not because of the square footage or whatever, because God put us there. And we're surrounded by people, right, who God wants to love through us. Get it? good. Got to stop justifying, right? Jesus certainly does not want us to drive by all our neighbors who we live near to love somebody else and ignore them. The next barrier is time. And and I think a lot of us, if you were here last week, you were kind of, you left kind of conflicted. On the one hand, you know, we left with a renewed understanding and passion of the real value of loving our actual neighbors, uh, of learning their names, of forming new relationships, Yet on the other hand, we left wondering, how in the world am I ever going to make this happen? Have you seen how busy I am? I don't have time for one new relationship, yet alone eight new relationships. Yet time is a major barrier to loving our actual neighbors. And that's why it's so critical for you and I to step back and to honestly ask ourselves this question. Do I live at a pace that allows me to be available to those who live around me, You can't love your neighbor if you're never around them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stop everything that you're doing right now. Instead, it's about taking a look at your commitments and being willing to reprioritize even letting go of some things so that there's some margin left in your life left in our lives that we can actually love our neighbors. In the art of neighboring, the authors say, if we truly want to be great neighbors, we're going to have to make some adjustments. And that may mean God will call you to say no to some good things so he can focus on the things that really are important. But the problem is, though, is that we live in a world that values production, results, and activity. So we tend to run from one task to another and then to another. Our inboxes seem to be perpetually full, I mean, there's always another voicemail, another email, uh, another text message that we have to respond to, and our to-do list, even though we keep checking things off, keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And and you know, we have no time for anything, yet we live in an age where there are more time-saving devices than any time in human history. I mean, if somebody would have told me 30 years ago the stuff that I'm doing right now, I would not have believed that. They'd have said, hey, you know what, you'll be able to drive in your car and make a phone call you kidding me. You'll be able to send electronic email while riding in your car or driving in your car, sitting in a doctor's office. I remember one of the first emails I sent after I got a smartphone it is I was getting my teeth cleaned. I was in Orlando, Florida. I went back for my son's wedding and I was emailing back here to the office and I go, that is so cool. I'm sitting in a chair getting my teeth clean and I just sent an email to Virginia if they would have told me that they would invent this machine where I could record my favorite tv programs and I could watch them anytime I wanted at my convenience and I could even fast forward through commercials I'd be like are you kidding me with all this stuff what am I going to do with all my extra time you know, I would have started dreaming about days on the beach, right? Putting a hammock up in my backyard, right? And listen, that is what technology could have enabled us to do. But instead of having more free time, we've added more things into our already cramped schedule. Even though we get more and more and more done, we still pile up more tasks. Our calendars stay full no matter how many time-saving devices are invented. As a result, we live our lives at warped speed. We become champion multitaskers. We put our heads down and zip the work, dropping our kids off at school or daycare on the way. We eat on the run. We have meetings on the fly. We get home late at night. We watch TV, check our messages, take our kids to and back from some sporting event, send some text messages, do some housework, pay the bills, and crash. And then we wake up the next day and do it all over again. It almost seems like a very dangerous way to live. That it's easy for us to justify this type of imbalance. And to help us identify this imbalance in our life, we need to be aware of three harmful lies. Now, these lies on the surface don't seem that bad, but if we listen to these lies, they will wreak havoc in our life. Lie number one is that things will settle down someday. That's a lie. Things will only settle down when you die. They'll settle way down. You'd be surprised how slow life gets when you die or when you get intentional about adjusting your schedule. You see, we keep telling ourselves, if I can just get through Wednesday, if I can just get through this season, then everything's going to be fine. And you get through this season, you get through Wednesday, and guess what? Things aren't fine because more stuff has been dumped on top of you. Lie number two is that more will be enough. And with this lie, we convince ourselves that we're just one more purchase or achievement away from contentment. And if we could just buy more, do more, be more, then things would be right. But, of course, contentment never comes. I mean, as soon as we purchase, achieve, or attain whatever it is we want, there's always something shinier, newer, and more alluring right around the next corner. Lie number three is that everybody lives like this. It's just a way of life. Just like we're driving our car. Hey, I wasn't speeding officer. I was just going with the flow, right? You know, hey, everybody else is frantic. I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. But listen, not everybody looks like this. Believe it or not, there are actually healthy people out there. In fact, the healthiest person who ever lived was Jesus. I think we all would agree that Jesus got a whole lot done. But hurry is not a word we would ever associate with his life. I mean, there were times when his disciples were saying, look at all these people. We've got so much to do. We've accomplished so much. Let's go, go, go. And they says, you know what? Uh, you know why don't we go off into the mountains for a while, and get alone by ourselves, and just pray. You see, Jesus came to offer us a different way of living. He said, I came, to have, I came that they may have life and have it to the full. And he didn't mean overloaded schedules when he said full. He meant in a sense of abundance, of contentment. A purpose, satisfaction, freedom, and meaning. Now, Luke 10, there's a story that points to the better way of living. Right at the story of the Good Samaritan, we encounter the, we encounter that Jesus had with two sisters. As Jesus' disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's let me to do all the work by myself? Tell her help me. <laughs> Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, you are worried, upset about so many things, but few things are needed, or deed only one. Mary's chosen what is better, and will not be taken away from her. There's a lot we can learn from Martha. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. At first glance, it looks like Martha's the one who gets it, right? I mean, she loves Jesus so much that she's actually in there preparing a a meal for him. However, Martha's busyness causes her to miss out on an opportunity to actually be with Jesus. So Jesus reprimands her, right? Crazy. He actually gets on her case for doing what? For serving, right? For serving him. It's crazy. But listen, that's exactly what makes this story so powerful, Jesus say, is saying that sometimes we have to learn how to say no to good things to focus on the most important things. Now, look, let's look at Mary. It says Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, which in that culture is what a student did with his disciple. But not if you're a woman, right? You know, women weren't to do that, right? Women were supposed to be in the kitchen being a good hostess. But Mary, Mary defies the cultural norms of the day, and she chooses to center her life around Jesus, And like manner, hear me, if we're going to love our neighbors well, we must go against the flow of a culture that is full of activity after activity after activity and a culture that applauds and awards busyness. Wow, you are so busy. You are always on the run doing something. And we must also make time to listen carefully to the teachings of Jesus and the great commandment that clearly tells us that Our purpose in life is to love God and to love others. And for us to actually do that, sometimes we need to let go of some good things so we have the time and energy for the better things, the main things, loving God, loving our neighbors, even our actual neighbors that live 100 yards, 100 feet from our door bottom line, living a hurried, frantic, overloaded life is not the life that Jesus calls us to live. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg talks about this disease we all have called hurry sickness. And he writes, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. I mean, can you remember a time when you were having a conversation with somebody and you could tell they were trying to rush you and go somewhere else? Can you remember a time when you were having a conversation and you were trying to get it over with? Okay. Any of those situations, did you feel a sense of love in that environment? Okay, here are a couple life balancing principles that will help you and I find the time to love our actual neighbors. Everyone make the main thing the main thing. Making the main thing the main thing means taking time to reflect on what's important in your life and then scheduling around those things. It's about being intentional about planning our life around our priorities, our values, the ones that line up with Jesus says matters most. And here's the deal. If we don't make the main thing the main thing, it probably won't even be a thing in our life, right? We won't even have room for it. You know, one day an expert in time management was, was speaking to a, a, a group of business students. And as he stood in front of a group of high-powered overachievers, he said, okay, time for a quiz, and he, he pulled out a two-gallon wide-mouth pickle jar. This is not two-gallon, just a little over court, right? Illustration purposes only, right? And, and, and then what he did, he, he took a dozen fist-sized rocks and he put them inside the pickle jar. And he said to these students, once you put the last one in, is this jar full? They said, Yes, it is. He says, Really? Reached under his desk, and he pulled out some gravel, and he dumped the gravel in, and he started shaking the gravel, and the gravel worked its way between the big rocks. And he said, So, students, is the jar full? They're catching on by now. I said, No. Reached under his desk, he grabbed some sand, poured the sand in. The sand worked in between the gravel and the big rocks, and he shook it up. Is it full? They said, No. Finally he reached under his desk, and he grabbed some water, and he filled it up to the brim. And then he asked him, hey, what is the point of this illustration? One student said, I know, I know, I know. It's that no matter how full your schedule is, if you try really hard, you can always cram more stuff in it. <laughs> he goes, no. That's not it. It's if you don't get the big rocks in first, you never get them in at all. And the big rocks are loving God, and loving people, loving your actual neighbors, and if you don't get them in first, guess what? And so I think some of us need to do go home and empty out our pickle jars and have God take us on a journey. Another thing that can help our balance our life is eliminate time stealers. I understand not many people would say that watching TV, surfing the web, spending hours on Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram, video games, etc., truly enhances their life. I'm not saying those things are wrong. Nothing wrong with them. They can be fine, relaxing, and need it. But let's be honest, they can steal time, right? They can be a huge waste of time. We have to learn to stop wasting so much time on these kind of activities where we have no time. What Jesus says matters most, right? I don't have time. Really? How long were your internet? How long did you play video games? How long were you on Facebook and Instagram? You didn't have time? See, we're God's masterpiece, and, 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 and sometimes the key to being a masterpiece is the art of elimination, right? you probably heard this story that one day when someone talked to Michelangelo and asked him after he, he, he carved the statue of David, like, like, dude, how did you do this, right? I mean, you just had a hunk of marble. How did you create this? And he said, simple. All I did was chip away everything that wasn't David you see he was a master of the art of elimination in the same way when we take the great commandment seriously we too must practice the art of elimination we must focus on top priorities and choose not to do the activities that keep us from that focus get it good another option we got to push through is fear right a lot of things to be afraid of today right yeah, maybe there's a neighbor, you're like, oh, he's kind of sketchy, you know. Or I, I've seen their kids in the neighborhood and how they talk. Man, they obviously, that family does not have the values that, that we have. All the drama, man, I don't know what's going on, but there's some serious drama going in that house. I don't know if I'm ready to step into that chaos and commitment, right? Now, I mean, it's one thing to go down to the food bank once a month. It's another thing to serve your neighbor who, like, ain't going anywhere anytime soon. Fear. Or, or maybe it, it, it's, it, it, the fear comes from being an introvert, right? You know, uh, sorry, I got to tell you, there's no asterisk loopholes, or escape hatch for introverts like us, right? You know, I'm sorry, but we still got to do it, right? Or, or maybe it's just the fear of, of feeling awkward, right? I'm going to feel awkward. Or, or, or maybe it's the fear, hey, you know what? I don't know if I'm good enough, right? They, I, I, I think they may have a really good job. They drive nice cars, and, and they seem really smart, and they have it together. And, and, and if I go over there, I mean, I'm too boring. There's nothing really special about me, and, and, and they're going to think that, 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 that I'm, you know, less than them. And all these fears. But listen, we have to push through those fears. You know, there's a verse we read this week and our faith comes from hearing, um, Proverbs 29, verse 25. And, and, and it won't pop up on the screen, but it's, it's it was so good. The fear of humans, the fear of human opinion, disables. That's true, isn't it? But trusting in God protects you from that. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five. The fear of human opinion. What are they going to think of me? Or they think I'm dumb? They're to They're all like, it, it, it disables. Listen, sometimes our fears can give us the wrong perspective about people. When God's people were about to enter the promised land the first time, right, they were afraid. They said, hey, the people over there, they are as big as giants, and we are only the size of what? Grasshoppers, right? But little did they know that the people in the promised land were thinking the exact opposite. Because Rahab tells them in in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, when we heard of it, what God was doing parting the Red Sea and all that, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. They were actually afraid of that. And God said to Joshua, I think he would say to us today, in regards to loving your actual neighbors, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Uh, the, the final barrier is Wrong motives. And this may surprise you. In the book, The the Neighbor in Church, Rick Rushaw writes, the goal of loving your neighbor is to be the best at what Jesus said matters most. We love our neighbors because we are Christians, not because we're trying to make them Christians. He writes that we need to stop hijacking the end game with other things. It happens so subtly. We love our neighbors so they will go to church. We love our neighbors so they'll join our small group. Those motives fall short. Those motives turn people to be loved into projects to be directed. If those are your motives, will you give up on them if they don't cooperate soon enough? Or will you stop loving them when they come to church or join your small group? What's your motivation now? People will know when they are a project. He says, here's how to keep your motives in check. Would you be willing to love your neighbor if you knew they wouldn't ever give their life to God? If you go in thinking this is an evangelistic strategy, it won't work. It's way bigger than that. Instead, we should go in thinking of neighboring as an act of obedience which Jesus accepts as love to him. Neighboring is not another program in the church to implement. Neighboring is so powerful that you can't program it. In fact, if you try to program it, they say, you can potentially program the life out of it. The problem is that programs always end, but we're never to stop loving our neighbor. Neighboring is a return to fellowship with God and one another. And yeah, 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 we do want people, right? We do want our, our neighbors to give their life to Jesus because Jesus provides real solutions to people. And or, orienting our life around the way he says to live is the better way to live. And Jesus is the, the ultimate answer to the problems in our cities and our communities. So sharing the story of Jesus and his impact in our lives is the right motive But it cannot be an ulterior motive. We don't love our neighbors to convert them. We love our neighbors because we are converted. You see the subtle difference there? We love them because Jesus is that what matters most. We love them because our neighbors need to be loved. They need to see God's kind of love. We, We love our neighbors because love is the most excellent way. We need to love them because as Paul said, that when hope and faith are gone, what remains? Love. Love remains. Love always remains. So that's why we love them. That's the motive. And, and so in order to, to love our neighbors, we have to push through these barriers of justifying. Well, you know what? And yeah, I, I know I got this little stupid magnet Steve's giving me, but you know what? I'm already loving enough people. I'm just going to drive by those homes, walk by those homes. I'm not going to, you know, because I'm, I'm loving enough, right? We got to stop justifying. We got to stop saying, hey, I don't have, if we, if we don't have enough time to love our actual neighbors then, then we, got some gra- we put too much gravel and sand in there and, and we need to make room for these big rocks, right? You know, if we're afraid, we gotta just trust that God will be with us, right? You know, don't do anything dangerous and crazy, right? You know, but you know, most of our fears in this community are not really physical danger, we'll be harmed. And then make sure your motive is just to love them, whether they go to church or not. You know, across the street from me, you know, you know, you know, one of my neighbors is, is a Muslim, right? He, he may never come to Christ, but I, that, that can't be my goal. I, I need to get to know Jamal better because maybe Jamal will come to Jesus. That can't be my motive. I need to love Jamal because God wants me to love Jamal, right, for no other reason, and, and, and then trust God to do the rest. And, and, and uh, we're about to wrap up. Um, in, in end of June, Laurie and I are taking a, a, a team of students uh, to Brazil on a mission trip uh, for Christ and Youth. And... One of the things we do, we do some training online where we study various mission uh, principles. And, and, and one of the principles we we're studying this week, uh, the team, is that God is already working. You know, it isn't like you know, we're Superman putting on the cape and going to Brazil and God wasn't already there. God is already working. And guess what? God is already working in your neighborhood right now. And there's eight homes nearby you, right? And, and that's what a lady named Diane found about. Uh, they talk about her in, in the book, The Art of Neighboring. Um, She attended a, a church that began talking about the art of neighboring, and she began to think, you know, I remember how neighborhoods used to be, and I always feel like I should know my neighbors, and I've been there for 10 years, but I don't really know any of my neighbors. And she did something radical. She actually went home and applied to her life what they talked about in church, and she started taking walks. And she took a walk and she talked to a lady who she waved at several times before, an elderly lady They began talking and commenting how everybody's so busy today. And uh, the lady was a widow and mentioned that she had some health issues recently. And when Diane began to show concern, the lady shared that she just finished up her cancer treatment and and it looked like it was in remission. And and Diane shared, hey, I'm a cancer survivor. And immediately they had this bond that they didn't have before. a few days later, she walked in and Diane runs into her again. They begin talking, and uh, the lady begins to open up about her childhood, how she was born in, in, in Germany, and, and how, she was actually a, how she was actually a Holocaust survivor, you know, and, 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 and Diane talks about how she went home that day, and she's like, this is nuts. I lived across the street from this lady for a decade, and, and I did not even know her story. And then she made a comment that Jay and Dave is going to pop up on the screen It's this, I'm learning that there are people right around me that have incredible things to share with me and others. It's like I've been living next to a gold mine. But I was too busy to know there was gold right next door. Church, there are gold mines right around my house I don't know about. And there are gold mines right around your house, your apartment that you don't know about, that God is waiting for you to get a shovel, learn a name, and see what happens. Because as God says, it all comes down to this in Galatians 5, verse 14. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor. And that's the people that, when we drive home today, right? They may be out washing their car, walking their dog, right? You know, loving those actual neighbors. You're gonna drive by on your way home. You know, you said, you want to fulfill my law? love those people near you. And I'll tell you, when we do that, when I do that and you do that, it's going to change the world. Amen? Amen? Guys, would you stand and pray with me? God, we love you. And God, I hope I didn't say that flippantly. I hope I wasn't presumptuous. Because you say that if we love you, we obey your teachings. And God, I thank you for this teaching about neighboring, God. I thank you for the conviction that it is just weighing on my heart. I thank you for letting me know that I need to overcome the time barrier and and my fear barrier. And even the wrong motives, God, of, hey, wow, this is a great way to grow the church and get more people in here. No, God, it's just simply to obey you and to fulfill your law. And God, I thank you for loving us so very much. And God, I know that you are so excited about what we're going to do as a people this week as we take whatever step you call us to do, where we learn that neighbor's name that we've been waving to for the past few months or maybe the few years, and we walk across the street, and we say hi, and we get to know their story. Amen.